Monsters are real. Ghosts are real too. They live inside us. And sometimes they win. Stephen King Devil's Dorp, the podcast, is a killer audio creations production in partnership with Showmax for the Showmax original documentary series, Devil's Dorp. This podcast may contain graphic information related to the crimes committed by the perpetrators. Sensitive listeners should take this into consideration. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of killer audio creations, Showmax or their partners. In 2016, South Africa started to hear the rumblings of one of the strangest cases in recorded history. We learned that a group calling themselves Electus Perdias had been arrested in connection with the murders of 11 people. We were horrified, curious, and intrigued all at once. We could never have known the true extent of what would be revealed. My name is Nicole Engelbrecht. I'm a true crime podcaster, freelance writer, and audiobook narrator. I first covered this case very early on in my podcasting journey, and since then, it has followed me around. So when Showmax approached me with the idea of this companion podcast, and I heard which case they had in mind, there was no doubt that I wanted to be involved. If you haven't yet watched the Showmax documentary Devil's Dorp, I highly recommend you do that first. The themes that will be explored in this podcast are a continuation of those dealt with in Devil's Dorp, but I also set out to answer some of the questions that I had about the case. In my true crime podcasting, I always set out to focus on the victims, so I had to wrap my head around approaching this project from a different angle. We do predominantly focus on the actions of the perpetrators here, but I think that, in the end, it still serves the victims. This case has been a maze of side roads. There are so many different rabbit holes you can go down, and each one seems to lead you further and further away from the point. Because the point is that 11 people lost their lives. The point is that there are countless secondary victims in this case. But I think perhaps by taking a closer look at what appear to be distractions, we can start to strip them away. One by one, we can remove the hows and the whys and the whos, and maybe in the process we can learn something so that this never, ever has to happen again. Many of you may be wondering about the origin behind the name of the documentary. Krugersdorp was originally a transient mining town. Like many South African towns, it sprung up around a source of work and money, in this case, mineral mines. The only problem with these mining towns and this was something that was seen across the world, is that they weren't really conducive to family living. There were very few resources in these rural places, 
so men would often have to live there alone, leaving their wives and children back home. I don't think I have to point out what a town full of lonely, overworked men looks like. When the men weren't working, they were drinking and fighting. Criminals also recognised these Wild West towns as places with little to no law enforcement. So in the 1800s, in Krugersdorp, if you wanted to commit murder and get away with it, that was the place to do it. In this atmosphere of violence, thuggery and desperation, Krugersdorp earned the name Devilsdorp. I wanted to start this podcast series with a bit of a controversial topic, religion. Now, this is either going to be really brave or really stupid, but I think it's necessary. It's necessary because much of this case has been focused on the religious elements that seemed to present themselves, and when you start to talk about people's beliefs, it can become a huge distraction. If you look at this case from the outside, it would be easy to believe that this was really some twisted person's idea of a war between good and evil. So I want to drill down into that and talk about the reality behind what role religion played in this case. Up front, I want to tell you that I do this with the greatest of respect for any religious group mentioned here. In fact, I want to have this conversation precisely because I do respect everyone's choice to practice their own beliefs, and I also feel that those beliefs should never be used, twisted and misrepresented to serve anyone's personal agenda. Cecilia Stain weaponized religion. She weaponized elements of what she portrayed as Christianity, and she weaponized elements of what she portrayed as Satanism. She used those skewed conceptions to control people. One of the first aspects of this that I wanted to discuss is Cecilia's claim that she escaped from the Satanic Church. Now let's be clear here. The only reason that Satanism was ever mentioned in relation to this case is because Cecilia Stain mentioned it. She claimed that she was a 42nd generational witch who had broken away from what she referred to as the Satanic Church. She claimed that she was fighting to stay free from these people that were hunting her and that she was being assaulted by demons and curses. Cecilia brought the mention of Satanism into the narrative, but no one ever questioned it. Even today, after she's been proven to be a liar and convicted of multiple murders, some people still haven't realized that it was all a lie. All of it. I think part of the reason that people find it easy to believe that Cecilia must have been sent by some dark force is because that's what we want. We want her to not be a normal human being. It would be easier to accept that all of these people had been taken over by otherworldly forces, because then they can't be normal people like us, like your high school teacher 
and your insurance salesman. They can't be the auntie next door. I'm sorry to burst that bubble, but they are. Many of the people in this case were controlled by fear, and fear is only powerful when you don't have knowledge. So I think it's important for us to explore a few topics that may be uncomfortable for some, so that we can start to break down that fear, and instead replace it with the power of factual information. No matter what your belief is, you can appreciate factual information. And none of what Cecilia was spewing about Satanism actually lines up with the facts of the religion. Audrey Norton is the co-founder and spokesperson of the South African Satanic Church. She chatted with me about the misconceptions that have been promoted around this case and pointed out a few specific parts of Cecilia's claims and how they absolutely don't line up with how Satanism is practiced as a religion. So, yes, Cecilia also talks a lot about being a high priestess in the Church of Satan, obviously. Um, Church of Satan does actually work on the concept of a high priest, and they've had a high priest for the last, which is Peter H. Gilmore, for the last, I don't know, since I've known about the Church of Satan, he's been the high priest for a very long time. So there's no way that she was a high priestess in the Church of Satan. And also, if you look at the type of person that is a Satanist, like we always say, a Satanist can't be converted. You are born as a Satanist. And at some stage in your life, you realize, oh, what I am as a Satanist. Okay, because you never feel like you quite fit in and you never feel like you the same as others because you see things differently, you view things differently. We tend to be very deep people and we work a lot on like reflection and inner study and self-development. We're very big into those type of things because Satanism essentially is the study of self. The type of person that eventually realizes they are a Satanist is normally the type that has learned a lot of lessons through themselves and like they've applied, like gone through experiences and applied the lessons they've learned and they have the insight as to why they had to go through certain experiences in life. And, you know, you only really realize you're a Satanist much later in life. It's not something you realize at age 15 and 16 and 17. It's something that comes with maturity. The type of person as a Satanist is also someone who's very successful in life. It's not the person who's living in a dingy flat in Krugerstorp. I'm sorry, (laughs) as judgy as that sounds. And also, one of the satanic sins is lack of aesthetics. We are very big on making things pretty and making things look good um, in the sense of our environment because we feel our environment is a reflection of ourselves. So we decorate, we make things pretty, and we paint the walls, and, you know, everything's always nice in the spaces that we are because it also keeps the energy clean if you do that. And if you've seen pictures of this woman and the way she's living, it's, it's a contradiction to Satanism again. So Satanism is all about not repressing your natural human beingness in that sense, like your carnal humanness. Um, we don't want to repress that. So we, we practice things in the sense of where um, we like to make things pretty, like I said earlier, and we like to indulge in earthly experiences. So we will eat the piece of cake. Why not? You know, we're not going to eat it every day. We're not going to go into compulsion because our statement states indulgence, but not compulsion. So everything in moderation again, but don't deny 
you know, yourself. And we're not going to to judge sex the way it's being judged in the sense of like, you know, like you can love a man if you're a man. You can love a woman if you're a woman. You can be transgender. You can express your love in the way that you feel it's appropriate for you. If you want to get married and have one partner, then do that. If you feel marriage isn't for you, then do that. You know, like don't repress who you are. So those are like very satanic concepts. And if you look at what the case is about and what Cecilia was talking about, you'll see it's two different things. It's completely in contradiction to each other. Satanists are very specific about protecting animals because we view animals and children as the closest connection we have to source energy. And source energy meaning the purest form of who you are. Because children aren't indoctrinated yet. You know, you can learn a lot from speaking to a two-year-old about just being yourself you know they sometimes very unapologetically themselves and they'll tell you straight if you're right or wrong or how they feel about you and we feel that nature and a child should be nourished and protected for as long as possible you know before they sort of get told and indoctrinated about you know kids don't even know what racism is animals the same animals are so intuitive and so connected to that source energy they should be protected as well so yeah, animals is a big thing. We have we love animals. <laughs> There's nothing. Um, the whole concept of also you know animal sacrifice and human sacrifice. People speak of um, when they think of Satanism. Again, it's it's not a satanic concept. In Satanism, we talk about revering life, living life to the fullest, respecting life, and so to take life is very unsatanic. And that's why we also argue you don't get a satanic murder. Because again, it's it's contradictory to each other, completely contradictory. Murder and Satanism, it's like, no, Satanism is about celebrating life. But what she's talking about a lot, well, Cecilia, yes, is what we would call reverse Christianity. So she views Satan or the devil as a literal being that exists. She mentions him talking to her as well. And she mentions like um, these people that want to kill her, she wants to leave Satanism and she's trying to get out and the demons that are attacking her. All of those concepts do not exist within Satanism. And what it actually is, is it's not Satanism, it's reverse Christianity because they take Christian concepts and they practice it in reverse, for instance. So where the Christians would have something like communion, the, the reversed Christian would actually go drink the blood, you know. And the reversed Christian would believe that this concept of the devil that Christianity has needs to be worshipped, you know. And they would go and they would worship that Christian devil. And that's where we would call it reverse Christianity or devil worship, for that sense, or Christian devil worship. In a moment, I'll discuss South Africa's history with satanic panic, and why the public in general might find it really easy to accept the type of narrative that Cecilia had created. For now, though, I wanted to let you hear Audrey's explanation of what the religion she practices is actually about. So we view Satan as an archetype, and some people don't understand that word always, so I'll just clarify that. An archetype is an idea or a concept and it comes from the psychologist Carl Jung, who's, who made a statement, we have lots of different versions of ourselves. Like there's the child you that's still in your consciousness. There's the mother you that's in your consciousness. There's the father you that's in your consciousness. And so everyone has this concept of 
Satan that exists within them. But it's that force within inside yourself that wants to stand up against injustices. It's that adversary to things. Because the word Satan means adversary or opposer. And so how we view it is whenever you feel there's an injustice and you want to stand up for justice and you get that feeling inside of you like this isn't right, normally in the face of discrimination or when there's derogatory things being said or done or racism, sexism, um, slavery, all those things that you can think of, there's something in you that says to you this isn't right, like we need to stand up against this. That is the satanic archetype. And I mean, in Satanism as a religion, we don't even believe in any external deity or demon for that matter. So we don't, you know, we have different names for this concept of Satan that we have. But none of that is an external deity that's going to be whispering in your ear. <laughs> like none of that. It's all very much about that knowledge of the internal self, you know. You know, the yes, Church of Satan America has the concept of a high priest. In South African Satanic Church, we don't have a hierarchy at all. And we specifically don't because Satanism is a philosophy, religious philosophy for the individual. We don't necessarily gather in groups. Yes, now and again, we'll do a community outreach, a beach cleanup, or we'll go feed the, the kitty cats. But it's not a religion where we all gather together. You know, it's an individual practice. And so that's when they talk about cults. Um, when Cecilia Stan mentions the satanic cults as well, I'm like, but Satanism specifically doesn't have cults because we are not the type to agree with each other, firstly, because we're all about speaking our minds. So we're not all necessarily going to agree with each other. And we're not all the same type of people because we focus on being an individual. We're not all going to follow the rules of a cult either because we're the adversary. So we stand up against stuff we don't agree with. We're going to challenge you. Satanist is not the type of person to, to get involved in a closed group type of situation like that. I felt that it was important for us to hear this explanation up front so that we can go into the rest of this discussion with an open mind. And it's not just Audrey Norton that says that Cecilia had no clear understanding of what Satanism actually is. Here's Jana Marx with her take on this aspect. I'm Jana Marx. I'm a journalist at Netwerk 24 and the author of the Krugerstorp Cult Killings. And I narrated this documentary. For me, having studied theology myself, I was extremely intrigued by how and where religion fit into, the, into this whole thing. And I think what hits me, and this was only a whole way down the trial, is how absolutely unoriginal Cecilia was. The religion is one aspect of it. I mean, I studied theology. I'm a Christian myself. But the Christianity that Cecilia uh, claimed to profess and the Satanism she claimed to previously profess, you know, it's not even similar to the established Christianity and established Satanism as religion. So that was very interesting. She couldn't, she didn't even use the originals. You know, she, she really just created these religions to actually fit her needs. In the Devil's Dorp documentary, you were introduced to F.H. Havenga. F.H. had a bit of personal involvement in this case, as he knew Ria Grunewald, and he also has a professional view on the case because of his work with the survivors of cult-like situations and ritualistic abuse. 
I chatted with FH at length for this podcast series, and you'll hear his comments throughout. We know that a crucial part of this case was when Cecilia, claiming to be all-knowing about the religion of Satanism, put together a manual for Rhea to use in her Know Your Enemy course. Sadly, we now know that this manual that so many people spent hours dutifully studying because they believed it would somehow be helpful to them in what they saw as a fight between good and evil was actually just copied and pasted off the internet. Her 42 generations of knowledge came from some poorly researched Wikipedia pages. F.H. Hovenkar says that the first time he saw that manual, he knew that he was dealing with someone who had no clue what they were talking about. I also saw the manuals that Cecilia wrote for their training in Overcomers Through Christ. And I realized when I read through the one manual that I got, but you know what? This is fiction. This is internet research. This doesn't even make sense. She contradicts herself in her own teachings. That's not how it works. It just doesn't make sense. You know, wisdom is sometimes just spelt common sense. So I guess that pretty much covers that. No one in Electus Padius had anything to do with the religion called Satanism. There were no death curses. There were no demons sexually assaulting Cecilia. It was all hogwash. And we can prove it. So now that we know that Cecilia completely fabricated that information, why did it work so well? Well, the first reason is that no one knew any better. And to be honest, they were probably too scared to ask any questions. South Africa has a long history with a phenomenon that is referred to as satanic panic. This phenomenon started in the United States in the 1980s, where it was believed that there was a widespread rash of ritual murders being committed by Satanists, and I use that term very loosely. In the States, by the 90s, academics and law enforcement started to weigh in, and people realized, for the most part, that the murders they were seeing were simply horrific murders, with various motives, that had nothing to do with any form of organized religion. By this time, though, the panic had crossed over into South Africa, and with our particular history, let's just say it took a little longer for it to move on. In fact, we still see pockets of satanic panic today. The Krugersdorp murders is a case in point. So why was South Africa so easily swayed by satanic panic? You would have heard in the Devilsdorp documentary that Louis Averbuch had something interesting to say about how South Africa's unique history had supported this idea of being in a fight between good and evil. I chatted with Louis, and you'll hear a lot more of his insights in future episodes when I discuss the psychology of the offenders. But as relates to this episode's theme, I asked him to expand on his comments in the documentary. If we look at 
the context of a leader inspiring certain people to act in a way they normally would have not. We talk about Cecilia and her followers. That is not an unknown movie. We know that phenomenon through Bolshevism, Nazism, apartheid government. So it's the same principle. A lot of people acted in a certain way under the apartheid government, believing that that's an okay way to act. A lot of the actions were condoned via religion. There was a time in South Africa's past, I think it was even up till the end of the 80s, where masses and masses of people condoned the apartheid regime because of religious beliefs. I mean, it's not unique to South Africa. Think of Nazism. The same thing happened there. Millions of Germans just following Hitler. They weren't all pathological people. They weren't all murderers. It's the same principle. And we know the role that conservative religious doctrine, religion massaged to fit the political goal has played in South Africa. It's not an unknown phenomenon what happened with Cecilia and her followers. Sometimes it's just more acceptable for society. If you look at the case of the Krugersdorp group, one of the biggest questions that arise is how on earth is it possible that these people could have been influenced by Cecilia that way? How could they have come to the conclusion that it's okay to murder those people? And we tend to seek the answer in the individuals. But actually, the environment can easily dominate personality-based differences. Easily making individual personalities and differences a relatively minor variable in the equation. In other words, given a powerful and engaging situation, people often react to it in a uniformly similar fashion, regardless of personality differences. I mean, there's been a lot of research done on this. It's such a persistent and reliable human bias to do that, to assign cause to the person rather than to the environment. It's actually been given a name. It's called a fundamental attribution error. We fail to want to believe that it's possible that people can be influenced by the external environment to such an extent that we want to believe now there's something seriously wrong with it. This is not something new, of course. Tyrannical governments have been using the fight between good and evil for centuries, to motivate ordinary citizens to support their cause. But if we think about how deep this type of thinking runs, and how many generations it's been passed down for, it sort of makes sense that we'd still be stuck in believing other people's narratives. And the thing is, that this is deeply personal. I know that a few of you are getting a weird feeling in your stomach right now just listening to this. So I want you to keep in mind that everything we're discussing relates back to the case at hand. We're pushing away the cobwebs, and that feels uncomfortable sometimes, but we're doing it so that we can get down to the truth of this case and maybe learn something out of all this unnecessary suffering. 
Louis mentioned how the environment sometimes supports people acting in a way they normally wouldn't. And I think that we can see how this was the case, not only inside of Electus Perdias, but also in the grander scheme of Krugersdorp and its residents. There's a reason that Cecilia's ploys worked so well, particularly in this town, and this is something that Louis and I spoke about as well. And cults tend to flourish in times of turbulence, political turbulence, socioeconomic changes, changes in society. That's when cults traditionally and always have flourished. So depending on where in the country your cult is situated, so to speak, it will be easier to draw certain people, for example, in the area that, that they operated in. It's a more conservative area. It's a community that traditionally exhibits typical, almost black and white religious type of behavior. The research has proven that more conservative people are more prone to accept leadership and to accept external truths. There's a definite link between uh, educational background, the way you experience religious beliefs, whether it's almost a cast in stone, whether it's more fluid and accepting and inclusive in nature. There, there are big, big connections between that and abilities to display cult-like behavior, definitely. During the 1990s, while South Africa was in the grip of satanic panic, we also had a special SAPS unit set up. It's called the Occult Crimes Unit, and it's something I, along with many other people, had actually thought had been disbanded. The unit was initially set up by Dr. Kurbus Jonker, and it's now headed up by Ati Lamprecht. And I can confirm that it is very much still in operation. Here's FH to tell us more about this. My name is FH Havenga. So just a bit of my background. So I've started off, obviously, I've got qualifications in the field of theology. I also got qualifications in the field of psychology, registered with the Health Professions Council of South Africa in private practice in Kempton Park area. And then I'm still the only specialized reservist in the country for cult-related crime, which basically means that being a specialized reservist for cult-related crime, I assist the detectives in either training and then also in information gathering, clue gathering, and putting together cases in relation to any form of occult-related crime. And that doesn't just mean Satanism, as most people think. So the Occult Crime Unit of South Africa investigates any criminal activity in the name of any form of philosophy, religion, or any doctrine. So it's not just as it was always portrayed, witch hunters, hunting Satanists, hunting pagans or Wiccans, uh, that is a misperception. And that's where I'm involved. I've been involved in the occult crime unit for more than 20 years now um, and still being the only specialized reservist, as I said, in training and assisting our detectives, especially in keeping the balance, because it's not all about 
the devil and the devil made me do it or my God said and because the Bible says. So it's not that interplay. We investigate crime and then any crime that has been committed and there is a subsection or indoctrination towards committing that crime from any philosophy or religion. The misperception is that people think that the occult crime unit investigates religions or philosophies. It, it doesn't. It just helps the court to understand the motivation behind the crime. We investigate crime, not religion, not belief system. And that's vitally important for the public to understand. There's a lot of propaganda. There's a lot of misunderstanding. The occult crime unit has never been disbanded. So the Relishai Commission, obviously headed up by Judge Relishai, he basically investigated the whole witch purging phenomena and said, you know what, we need to have a policing unit that also has the understanding of, as you said, your African traditional witchcraft, African traditional practices, and so on, so that they can protect the people. Because if somebody points out somebody in a in a specific area as a witch, they would kill her or him. The police needs to serve and protect. That's why I'm saying, you know, the occult crime unit, I think, is very misunderstood because we are there to protect. We are there to help the court to not just view the crime in the light of the specific belief system. We are there to guide the court in a balanced and scientific as far as possible explanation of the motivation to the crime and also to protect the innocent. So from what FH is saying, I can see value in this unit from a cult investigation point of view where cult-like situations could be harmful to residents of South Africa, and most definitely from a Muti murder perspective. And please note, I said occult, not occult. We'll have that conversation in a minute. If this is indeed the mandate of the occult crimes unit, Perhaps it just needs a name change to better represent its purpose to the public. Because at this point, it's all a bit up for interpretation. We know that mention has been made in this very case of an officer from the occult unit having been at the scenes of the early series of murders. And even Captain Ben Boyson told me that when he took over the case, he kept on being told that there were so-called occult connections, but he couldn't see them. This concerns me, because I almost feel like this became a distraction early on, and not just for the public, but maybe for investigators as well. So let's talk about the word occult. It is very often used in a negative context, and I think it's important for us to really understand what it means. Here's what F.H. Havenkar had to say about the term. The word occult comes from the Latin word occultus occultum, which means nothing for the listeners most probably, but here we go. So that basically just means that which is hidden from sight. That So occult means you are practicing some form of practice that are hidden from sight, that are mysterious, that might involve 
whatever the practitioner might call prana, higher powers, higher energy, and so on and so forth. And it's usually focused on self-gain. It's usually focused on, you know what, I get this message from an unseen power or force or this power from an unseen power or force, and I can then manipulate my natural environment or get knowledge which is not readily available to the general public. That's why it's called the mysterious, the unseen, the esoteric. But then you get, so that's a practice to make it very simple. That's a practice where I call on supernatural powers, energy, inner power, chi, whatever we want to call it. And that's why it's so dangerous because you know what? People want to put everything in boxes. But technically that definition includes Christian practices, non-Christian practice, philosophical practices, you know, um, supernatural practices, esoteric practices. So it's a broad definition. So really, the occult does not point toward anything negative, dark, and it certainly doesn't necessarily point toward Satanism. It's interesting for me to see how some practices that were once considered occultic are now openly embraced by people of all belief systems and acknowledged as being helpful and nothing to be afraid of. Probably the best example of this was given to me by Audrey Norton. In the early phases of psychiatry, which we now class as a science, the practice was considered occultic because psychiatrists were claiming to be able to work with a force that could not be seen, which is really just our human brain and cognition, to help people deal with mental illness. Yoga, meditation, mindfulness, all that stuff technically falls under this banner. And the only reason I'm making this point is because of the case we find ourselves looking at. How many times have you heard some of the Krugersdorf murders referred to as occult murders? How many other cases have you heard referred to as occult murders? Tons, right? And it's not helpful. Firstly, because it's unspecific and probably untrue. But also, because it starts to take away the responsibility from the person that actually committed the crime. The minute we hear that someone committed a crime because they were involved in the occult, we start to think about dark forces beyond that person's control, when in reality, the only force at work, at least in this case, was Cecilia's narcissism. Something else that kept popping up in my conversations with the people I spoke to about the religious aspect of this case is context, and it's something that Cecilia also used to her advantage. I think one of the most heartbreaking moments in this documentary was when we saw video clips of Michaela. I knew from my research about the case that she'd been studying at Rayma Bible College, but I didn't know how advanced in her study she was, and that she was already giving sermons. Watching her speak with such passion and conviction about her beliefs almost made me feel like she was a completely different person 
than the one that would eventually become a victim of her own husband and Electus Pedias. And I think that it's this very conviction and passion that has to make us wonder how they managed to convince her that all she had learned was wrong. And I think the answer lies in context. Jana Marx mentioned this in my conversation with her as well. Jana is a journalist, but she studied theology, and she has strong views about how religion of any kind can be taken out of context and abused. Yeah, this I think this is one of the main reasons why this case matters so much to me. As a Christian myself, this represents everything of the misuse of religion or the abuse of religion. You know, the interesting thing is we, we think this is something that's this is not something that happens a lot or whatever. I mean, you don't really see how religious people go around killing people. But I see the tendencies of religion being used to manipulate people on a daily basis. And as I've said now, not everything leads to murder, of course. But even if I look at my own church denomination or um, you know, similar church denominations in Christianity or even other religions, how scriptures are taken out of context to enforce opinions on people, which is so contrary to what that specific religion stands for. So this is actually a theme that's much broader than just serial killers in court. And you see how difficult it is to actually disagree with someone that is super religious. I mean, because now I have a situation of God told me whether it's Cecilia that's saying it or Ria that's saying it. And for whatever reason they are saying it, it's difficult to argue with someone who gets messages from God. It, it is. So I think the responsibility that that person have, with the moment you start to talk about God, I mean, really, you, you have to know what you're talking about. You can't just do a two-week course and think you, you know everything, and now you're going to start to teach people about this. Because then you get the situations where religion is misused, where people are misunderstanding. So this is how, how easy this can derail. This is also where it becomes important to, you know, to consider context. And I think this is a big problem that we have even in today's churches in, in different religions. You know, what Celia did, she would take a, a scripture out of context, totally out of context. She will, for example, she will preach about King David in the Old Testament. And she will use King David and his armies and, you know, all that wars. At that time, she will use that to justify why, why they, as Lectus Pedeos, as her ministry, should also go and kill people. Captain Ben Boyson, through his investigation, also saw how religion was twisted and used against people here. It's, a, it's actually a thing that's actually just between you and God, or you and the person you believe in. So, yeah, it's a personal thing, and when you start dealing with this and speaking with, with other people like Cecilia, other reasons to do it, and then people start following you and doing stupid stuff. Go to church and listen to whatever um, religion you're in, and yeah, don't follow other people's personal opinions. And I think that's very good advice to take. Really, 
it doesn't matter what you believe. Any belief system is open to being taken out of context if you allow yourself to be too greatly influenced by other people. Whatever your particular brand of spirituality, it really comes down to you and your relationship with whatever higher power you believe in. As human beings, we naturally all want to be on the right side of whatever we perceive to be the distinction between good and evil. And really, there's nothing wrong with that. It is this drive that has us standing up for what is right. But it's when we allow other people to tell us what is good and what is bad, when we ignore that little voice inside us that already knows the answer, that we find ourselves on the wrong side of the equation. So as we come to the end of episode one, I think we've been able to figure out at least the religion aspect of this case. We know that religion was skewed and weaponized to create fear and ultimately control in this case. We also know that a lack of understanding allowed myths and misconceptions to continue growing and breeding. What Cecilia Stein and the rest of Electus Perdias did had nothing to do with Christianity, Satanism, or any other religion. These murders were the result of greed, a deep desire for control, and an enormous level of narcissism. Thank you for listening to episode one of Devil's Dorp, the official companion podcast. Don't forget to give us a follow on the podcast app you're using to listen right now. And if you're enjoying the podcast, reach out to Showmax on their social media platforms and let them know that you'd like to hear more of these companion podcasts in the future. Next time on Devilsdorp, the podcast. The biggest question that has lingered with this case is around the psychology of the offenders in question. In episode two of Devil's Dorp, the podcast, we discuss psychopathy, cult psychology, and what it takes to go from being a high school teacher to a cold-blooded killer. <laughs>